0: Today's show is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. And right now, Think Again listeners can stream Neil deGrasse Tyson's amazing class, The Inexplicable Universe, and hundreds of other eye-opening classes taught by world-class professors on everything from cooking to the ancient Etruscans for a full month absolutely free. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash think. Today's episode of Think Again is also sponsored by GoToWebinar. It lets you connect and interact seamlessly with your target audience, and it doesn't suddenly freeze up or drop them or do anything else to embarrass you. It just works so your potential customers can focus on what you're saying and what you can offer them and not on troubleshooting their internet connection. Visit GoToWebinar.com to start a 30-day free trial. Again, that's GoToWebinar.com. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in little doses from some of the most creative thinkers on earth. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone. Big Think's producers surprise our guests and me, the host, with ideas that we're not prepared to discuss. I'm really excited to be joined today by Sarah Kay. She's a spoken word poet who I first saw and was amazed by long ago in Russell Simmons' Deaf Poetry Jam, all the way back in 2006. I used to show it to my seventh grade English students when we were studying poetry. Her beautiful, generous 2011 TED Talk, If I Should Have a Daughter, has been viewed almost nine million times online. Sarah's organization, Project Voice, uses spoken word poetry to entertain, educate, and inspire young people and adults all over the world. And her latest book, The Type, is a powerful, illustrated poem about what it is to be a woman in spite of or within the expectations that the world places upon you. Welcome to Think Again, sir. Thank you. There are many things I wanted to talk to you about, but so much of what you do, the work that you do, seems to be about empowering other people to create and express themselves and find a kind of childlike place from which they can do that. And that's an approach to art that says that anyone can be an artist, as opposed to this idea that artists are these kind of unique and special creatures that are distinct from all the other people on earth. Do you believe that? Is that kind of how you see things? Do you think anybody can be an artist? Everyone should be?
1: I don't know if I think everyone should be, but I do think that a lot of people come from places where being an artist is not modeled or valued as an option. And as a result, the people who are encouraged to become artists or have the means to take financial risks and become artists is a much smaller group of people. And that means that the art being created is missing out on a lot of diverse voices that should be included. I'm always trying to find ways to welcome people into the house of poetry, especially people who, were, who, who did not feel welcome before.
0: Well, so in that context, this is kind of like a harsh question, but is there such a thing as bad poetry?
1: Certainly. I also think it's a misconception that everyone can be a good poet. Everyone can be a poet anyone can write a poem the same way anyone can be a basketball player, but not everyone's going to be Steph Curry, you know, that's how it works.
0: How has your poetry changed over the years? I mean, you've got a new book of a poem, (laughs) (laughs) but I was going to say book of poetry. Although I want to say, by the way, one of the things I really like about the format of this book, and I guess a lot of your poetry is published this way, It's presented very simply, sometimes just one line on a page. There are illustrations, and it's occupying this strange space that could be almost between children's book and adult book, which I think is a lovely thing.
1: Someone said it was sort of like dropping a single before the EP, which I really like. Someone else said, it's when you want more than a Hallmark card, but less than a collection of poetry, which I also will take. I think Hallmark gets, you know, is yeah, maybe not what I wanted to hear, but, but sure, I'll take it. It's a new way of trying to publish, or not a new way, but it's certainly a, an uncommon way of trying to publish poetry. But I learned it from Seth Godin, okay. who is the person who published my first book ever but also the first book where we tried to do a single poem. That poem was B, which is the poem that begins the If I Should Have a Daughter TED Talk. And his commentary was that that was a poem that people were going to want to be able to give as a gift to somebody. Ah. And he said, you know, it's all well and good to send somebody a a URL link to a video. But it's very different from having a physical object that you can place in someone's hands.
0: I think that's great. But going back to the earlier question, which I kind of elided over, Your poetry is changing in what way, like as over time, as you get older?
1: My collection of poetry is called No Matter the Wreckage. And when I completed that anthology, I sat down and thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. What if I never write again? What if this is all the poems that I had in me, and now they're all in this book, and now I'm doomed. (laughs) It's been really exciting to have time now to figure out what kind of writer I am as an adult. I published that book when I was 25. Fans is a weird word, but the people who follow my work, right. a lot of them are young people. I was a young person when I was writing, and they and I are all growing older and are thinking about more mature topics and are struggling with more complicated and more nuanced problems.
0: I saw you had a shout out on one of your things from Lynn manuel Miranda, which is super cool. Did you ever try to write rap?
1: (laughs) When I was in high school, my childhood sweetheart was a rapper. Oh, wow. And when AIM was in its heyday, I only used AIM for the purpose of rap battling him.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Because
1: it was just enough of a time delay that I could freestyle fast enough, whereas in person, Impossible for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess one doesn't always have to freestyle. Probably not all the great rappers are great freestylers. That's also. true. I don't know.
1: Although the reason that I know Lin Manuel Miranda is because he was part of, is still part of a improv group called Freestyle Love Supreme, oh, yeah, yeah. which is a group of incredibly talented performers who would get together and do this improv show that was based on freestyle rap and music and creating songs on the spot. I was in high school at the time, they were doing shows maybe once or twice a month or so, and I would go watch every single show oh, wow. that they did to the point where finally they were like, who
0: are you? And why
1: are you always at our show? Because it was and continues to be the, the best live show I have ever seen. And so much of what I know about being a performer and being just a human on a stage in front of an audience, I learn from watching that group of guys.
0: Are they still doing it?
1: They are still doing it, although obviously Lynn many- Lin-Manuel
0: must have a yeah, hard and, time. Yeah, and also, I mean, <laughs>
1: four of them are Tony Award winners. Okay. So they're a little busy. One of them is getting married next week and I'm officiating the wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we've become close over many years of time and I'm very grateful When they first met me, I was a kid hanging outside the club after their shows, and they were still very generous with their time. That's great. And that's how artists are able to learn from other artists, is when when people are generous with their time.
0: So now I think let's get on to the second part of the show, which is where we are both confronted with Big Think video clips on any imaginable subject from past Big Think experts, and we'll have a free-form conversation about them. Cool. You ready? Yeah. Okay, cool. Beethoven is rock and roll. Josh Ritter, singer-songwriter and musician. And let's see what it's about. I think of folk music as anything you can sing in the car on the way home. Whether you're coming back from like you know a Fleetwood Mac reunion concert, or or whether you've got Mississippi John Hurt on, it doesn't matter. You know, It's, it's a marketing term. You know, it's so hard to quantify or classify anymore. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I always thought that what I was doing was rock and roll with lots of words. But I, I would say that folk music is in the same boat with everybody now. You know, it's like, in a world where you can like go on, on Facebook and hear millions of people playing, you know, millions and millions of songs, it's hard to say what community music is anymore.
1: I love that. I think he's tapping into something that I have experienced before, which is that people ask you to define the limitations of your genre. Yeah. So it sounds like he was answering someone saying, like, what is folk music? Or, you know, what isn't folk music? Or where does folk music begin and end? Or something. And his response is sort of like, I don't really care. (laughs) Right. Which is actually my response when people ask about poetry. I think sometimes people will challenge me and say, oh, you call what you do poetry, but I would call it storytelling, or I would call it prose poetry, or I would call it something else. And my genuine answer, which isn't meant to sound dismissive, but is real, is that I don't care what you call it. Since so much of my work is focused on how do we expand who is allowed or who feels welcome in poetry, it is just unhelpful to me to try to create barriers when all I'm trying to do is break that down a little more, which doesn't right. mean that I think there's no such thing as form poetry that is very strict based on this. There, There is no argument as to this is a sonnet and this is not a sonnet, <laughs> right, right? Right, this right, is a haiku, right. this is not a haiku. Right. That I understand. I'm just less interested in trying to limit what is possible in the literary sense and also just the world sense.
0: I feel like a lot of people engage with art and maybe the world in a really like fear-based manner so that they need somebody to tell them what it is that they are listening to or encountering and to just think, what do I think of this? Certainly. <laughs> you know,
1: Depending on who I'm performing for, something that I do often, when I'm doing a big live show, especially if I know that the audience of the show is not already familiar with poetry, is I often start with a poem that the beginning of the poem is intentionally very conversational. So I will be talking to the audience, hey, thanks for being here, so excited, anecdote about what's going on today, blah, 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 and all of a sudden I'm halfway into a poem before anyone has realized that that's what's happening, which is uh, totally intentional because I want them to be at ease before they are are able to go, wait a second, is this a poem? Because lots of people enter poetry spaces with a preconceived notion of what it is and whether or not they're going to like it or not. So if they are already enjoying themselves before they figure out that poetry is happening, <laughs> right. I think that's very, very useful. I don't do it all the time, right. but it is a tactic that sometimes I use so that people can feel comfortable and enjoy themselves before their, their hunches come up around what they think poetry is going to be.
0: Sure, sure.
1: I think because my background in poetry is through spoken word poetry mm-hmm. and the way that I was introduced to it was in a dive bar in New York City. Right. So much of my association to art making is also community building. Right. And the role that community plays in art and the role that art plays in community. And I'm, I'm very sensitive to people who are working on their art but also consider part of their work, work in the world and work in the community, and being generous artists is what we were talking about earlier. Right. So much of what I know about poetry, I learned from adult poets who were willing to take the time to show me apprentice style, and I wouldn't be the artist I am if I hadn't had mentors who took that time to do so. That being said, I'm also aware that in every art community there are predatory people there are people who are not interested in anything other than themselves and their name and their ego and they for any various reasons are doing things that are detrimental to the community and detrimental to other artists so i think what qualifies as folk or what qualifies as poetry or what qualifies as is also a similar vein as to who belongs in the community and who doesn't
0: i very much like this idea of art communities and then you know some like bowery poetry club is that where you were you started out yeah and like always feel like there are fewer of them than i'd like there to be it's also different a lot of times for writers who just write on the page as opposed to for the stage i mean they do have writers groups but they're like off in a room somewhere mostly
1: certainly in an increasingly digital era on the one hand, the boundaries of your community are somewhat limitless, which is amazing and fantastic. On the other hand, then does that take away from the amount of time that people dedicate to meeting in real life and spending time in one room and space and breath. Although, I would answer my own question, challenge there and say no. right? One of the things that I have been astonished by and excited by and lucky for is that even when most of my work is available in video format on the internet for right. free, it doesn't mean that people won't still take time out of their lives to come be a part of a live poetry event because it is different sure. and it is powerful and not just me any any live performance there's something that is irreplaceable that people will still you know come out for which i think is the the joy and magic of live performance
0: yeah and those online communities also lead to real world comings exactly. together that exactly are exactly is that it just it
1: just helps feed it instead of replacing it
0: Okay, well, I think we've, we've gone pretty far in that topic. <laughs> okay. shall, we see what, shall we see what the next one yeah, is? Yeah,
1: our next uh, physicist. Uh, yeah,
0: what do we have next? Now it might be a physicist. It is the comedian Lewis Black. Cool. And he is talking about the fact that it is ludicrous to be critical. You're listening to this show, so I'm assuming that you like to learn new things. Me too. Basically, I wish college lasted forever. With The Great Courses Plus, it literally can. Whether you're trying to brush up on cooking or astrophysics, or like me, the history of ancient civilizations, they've got a lecture series for you. How about Neil deGrasse Tyson, that sly superhero of science? He's got a truly great, great course called The Inexplicable Universe. And right now, Think Again listeners can stream this along with hundreds of other eye-opening courses for a full month, absolutely free. Just go to The Great Courses Plus Dot com slash think to sign up. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com
2: slash think. This whole idea of millennials being, you know, this or that or the other, I find it ludicrous to uh, be critical because you're talking about the generation that was the tipping point of why the Supreme Court passed the, the, the marriage, you know, for gays. They're the ones going, are you kidding me? They're the gender fluid group. I mean, I don't get that at all. I mean, psh, it was hard enough for me just to be a guy, let alone if I'm gonna <laughs> figure that I'm fluid about this. I don't get it, but it doesn't disturb me. A lot of my generation, I might as well have been born on a different planet than some of these pricks. I feel like they're dinosaurs, really? You're gonna carry the stuff from the 50s on with you? This is, Really, you're gonna stand there in Congress? You know, that I find more enraging. When I was a kid I did LSD and they said, well, you you can't really do a lot of LSD. So they made it illegal. That generation turns around and drops on these kids something that was just as potent as LSD. That phone and the amount of apps and the computer, it's the extension of the human nervous system. It's a drug. We are in the midst of a total sea change. We've gone from one age to another. We have not entered the new age, and we haven't left the old age. But boy, it's it's happening, and it scares the shit out of a lot of people. I don't even know where to begin with
0: this. Millennials and <laughs> LSD. <laughs> Where do you want to start, Sarah? (laughs) I'm putting this on you. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Well, it's funny because it's kind of what we were just talking about a little bit in terms of the commentary of how phones and computers and whatever. We're not out of the old, but we're not into the new yet. I think it's very accurate to exactly what my experience is, which is that I do a very old art form, (laughs) which is... I yeah. say poems out loud.
0: Yeah, you're like it's like Beowulf. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah
1: that's often how I think of it. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I'm very aware of the fact that my career would not have been possible in another era. The high majority of what I'm able to do, I'm able to do because people see my work for the first time in video form online, is really wild, but true. I'm right. able to tr- travel across the world to a country I've never been to and don't know anybody at, and several hundred people will come out to see a show because they've seen videos online. That's bananas. And I'm very aware of how bananas that is. (laughs) So I totally empathize with the extreme reaction to how wild that introduction of technology is. Although that would make me kind of sound like I'm not a quote unquote millennial, but (laughs) I think one can be a, a millennial and still be baffled by how amazing technology is. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't know. You know, he's talking a little bit about the, like, kind of characterizations and mischaracterizations his generation has of millennials. Oh, these kids today, they're like this, they're like that. So much of that is so dangerous. I just think everybody in every generation is coming with the basic same human equipment, same human hearts just navigating through a slightly different contextual space, sometimes a radically different one. But I don't think that the material, the substance of what it is to be human changes in any meaningful way.
1: Well, one of the things I think about a lot when I'm teaching in schools is that I do believe that kids are just kids, and the only thing that changes is what you drop them in the middle of and make them learn how to survive or deal with. That's true. and. Yeah those can range what they have to learn to survive and deal with changes very drastically depending on where you are and and what those kids are having to navigate. But right, that kids are just kids. And I think that millennials are the same young people that were young people in another generation, but they've been dropped into a very different world and have had to learn how to deal with a lot of different things that previous generations were not dealing with.
0: Yeah, and like you said, the circumstances, the context causes them to wrap themselves in different technologies, different lingos, different armor that makes them appear a certain way. Especially to people who aren't on the inside.
1: Yeah, maybe. Although even that, I mean, it just seems so antiquated to even be like kids these days. Like that, the premise of yeah, 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 yeah trying yeah, yeah. to categorize any large group of people that expands a globe. No, no, it's, you know, it's, it's ludicrous. So no, I, I, t- I
0: totally agree. <laughs> but let's just take like. You know, for example, a my grandmother mm-hmm. taking a look at a conversation on Snapchat or something, right? Okay. Even texting, you know, the way people are talking in shorthand to each other, the kind of ironic joking they might be doing, whatever. Like, you're wrapping yourself and you're cloaking yourself in certain forms that are not going to be universal to everyone in a generation.
1: Something you know. that I think is confusing to me, though, is the categorizing of young people as being apathetic and or ironic, I guess I'm sure, not I'm sure, I know there are people who are, but I would say that there's just as many apathetic and ironic adults or older than adults and one thing that I think is unique to this younger generation which I'm finding in the work that I do in schools is because of the availability of information across the widest spectrum possible. Authenticity is something that cannot be fabricated and also is extremely valued by anyone of any age. Because there's so much content now and it's so clear when that content is being fabricated for monetary gain or social currency or whatever, Yeah, kids are smart and kids see through that. And when kids see something that is genuine and vulnerable, they don't respond by rolling their eyes, they respond by engaging very fully. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I do something that it would be very possible for someone to respond with irony or apathy to, and that never happens. When I get on a stage and choose to be vulnerable and share a piece of work that is personal to a group of young people, they are incredibly kind and incredibly receptive and generous in their response. Because I think the exchange of vulnerability gives a permission that is really important.
0: That's really interesting. Um, okay, cool, so let's move on to the last to one. The last one yeah. cool. Okay, this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. God. I'm embarrassed for our species. Oh, no. Today's show is also sponsored by gotowebinar.com. If you're trying to run a business in our age of hyperconnectivity, nothing says amateur hour like a webinar that just doesn't work. GoToWebinar works. It lets you reach hundreds of people seamlessly and keep them engaged with live chat, interactive polls, and real-time feedback. It makes it easy to reach your target audience and turn leads into customers. And it will not suddenly embarrass you in front of the whole world. Visit GoToWebinar.com to start your free 30-day trial. That's GoToWebinar.com.
3: Astrophysicists have been telling people for decades that Earth orbits the sun in a shooting gallery, and asteroids hit Earth. They put life and civilization at risk. It was the 1980s where we finally concluded what was the primary reason that the dinosaurs were taken out of the tree of life, that an asteroid the size of Mount Everest slammed into what is today Mexico. In fact, the Yucatan Peninsula. There's a 100-mile diameter crater there. And we learned over the decades to follow that you didn't have to just be there to die. You could be on the other side of the earth and still die from that explosion because that explosion alters the ecosystem. We began to learn this in the 1980s. We've been telling this to elected officials. But it took an actual meteor over Russia, exploding with 25 times the power of the atom bomb in Hiroshima, to convince people that maybe we should start doing something about it. I'm almost embarrassed for my species.
1: I think regularly about global warming being the cause of the end of the world as we know it in various degrees. So to add on, oh, casually also, you should maybe keep in mind that an asteroid could come in contact with Earth at any time. Is like I just don't have right. enough panic in my body to to hold all of that anxiety at one time. <laughs> so I'm gonna let Neil deGrasse Tyson like handle that anxiety for me, and I'm going to just focus back on like the seas rising and...
0: I mean, given the priorities, like we can't even convince the world governments to actually, I mean, some, but we can't convince American business to significantly and radically change the way it is doing things in order to prevent what is obviously a global catastrophe from happening then we're also going to somehow convince them to simultaneously spend billions of dollars on an asteroid deflection system. I, I don't know. I think it's triage, you know?
1: Right. It Although, was, ironically, I wonder if, like, if an asteroid was coming, they would probably much sooner deal with that than
0: global warming. Yeah, they assuming could, they could deal with it. I don't right. know what they do. they shoot a rocket at it. I don't know. <laughs> But it doesn't feel
1: urgent enough that they would be willing to pour money into it, right? Like, if an asteroid's not actively coming, then they're going to be like, well, we could really use that money for drilling.
0: But, I mean, if you have the detection system and you don't have some means of knocking the asteroid away, that's kind of like, (laughs) here is the thing that is coming to kill you now. And you know exactly where it is. It
1: just feels like a bad Hollywood movie. (laughs) I don't
0: like it, yeah.
1: It also makes me think, though, of I have a group of friends who are all very very smart in all different directions so one of them is a medical doctor and one of them is what you know all these different directions but one of their favorite things to do when we're all together is to pose a question about how something works or what something is in the world and see if by sheer willpower and general group think we can figure out the answer to something that we definitely don't know the answer to that's like just scientific that you should just look up but see if we can like muscle through the understanding of something so okay. for example like you know what would happen if two black holes crossed paths How so, could wait, we so you are this?
0: i didn't quite hear you are allowed to use google no no no
1: no googling no anything it's just based purely on like what you remember from the classes you took.
0: That's hilarious. And what you
1: know of, like, physics and or, you know, and, it, and it's not necessarily always. I mean, that the reason I thought of that was yeah, because yeah. of the asteroid. But so, I, so it reminds like, me of, like, us sitting here being like, how would we deflect an asteroid? Yeah. It's like us with zero information or expertise yeah. trying to solve this, like, very real scientific problem. So so
0: what what, what would we do? <laughs> what would we do to yeah, solve
1: right. an asteroid? Yeah, right, right
0: now, Sarah, <laughs> Sarah K, you, no, you and no, I are the <laughs> only people on earth that are aware of this <laughs> asteroid that is imminently about to destroy I think we'd probably use
1: this podcast to alert the authorities mm-hmm. and then we'd have to That's come up right. with like a super clickbaity headline to ensure that asteroid it would go viral asteroid
0: imminently <laughs> yeah. destroying the earth
1: Listen to these two amateurs <laughs> save earth from destruction yeah. you'll never believe what happens in the 12th minute of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you would just getting, like the most clickbait possible headline to ensure that it got into the hands of the right authorities. That
0: would probably be the most efficient way because I was already thinking like, how am I going to get a hold of a rocket? And Not that's just, and that's a non-starter. You yeah. Know. What are we going to go to Cape Canaveral or something? No. And No. All right. Sarah Kay, it has been so great having you on the show today. And I actually wondered if the answer is no, this is going to sound weird on tape and we might have to cut <laughs> it. But I wondered whether you would want to read a little something maybe. I think, poetry you'd want to leave our, yeah, our listeners sure. with. Because,
1: uh, I got one. Okay, cool. This is perfect, in fact. Okay, awesome. How did I not think of this before? Awesome. How timely. All right, okay. Sarah
0: Kay, about to drop some poetry.
1: <laughs> I see the moon. The moon sees me, the moon sees somebody that I don't see. God bless the moon, and God bless me, and God bless the somebody that I don't see. If I get to heaven, before you do, I'll make a hole and pull you through and I'll write your name on every star and that way the world won't seem so far. The astronaut will not be at work today. He has called in sick. He has turned off his cell phone, his laptop, his pager, his alarm clock. There is a fat yellow cat asleep on the couch raindrops against the window, and not even the hint of coffee in the kitchen air. Everyone is in a tizzy. The engineers on the 15th floor have stopped working on their particle machine. The anti-gravity room is leaking. Even the freckled kid with glasses whose only job is to take out the trash is nervous. Spills the bag. Spills a banana peel and a paper cup. Nobody notices. They are too busy recalculating what this will mean for lost time. How many galaxies are we losing per second? How long before the next rocket can be launched? Somewhere. An electron flies off its energy cloud. A black hole has erupted. A mother finishes setting the table for dinner. A law and order marathon is starting. The The astronaut is asleep. He has forgotten to turn off his watch, which ticks like a metal pulse against his wrist. He does not hear it. He dreams of coral reefs and plankton. His fingers find the pillowcases sailing masts. He turns on his side, opens his eyes once. He thinks that scuba divers must have the most wonderful job in the world. So much water to glide through.
0: And that wraps this week's episode of Think Again. I'm going to be back here next week with novelist and literary critic Joshua Cohen. Thank you to everybody who has taken a little bit of time to rate or review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to the show. And if you haven't, but you are enjoying the show, please take a minute and do that for us. It makes a major difference. It really helps the show. I'll see you next week.